0: This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.
1: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, in praise of waste collectors, the risky world of climate risk, IDO's Tim Brown on how to change the system, and the state of urban composting. Nothing's going to waste this week on 350. September 4th, 2020, the cusp of Labor Day weekend here in the United States. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, ready to head off on holiday, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. The bag's all packed, ready to go?
0: Bags not packed. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't know where I'm going. I have some day trips in mind and potential overnights, but but my husband and I are going to be very spontaneous just because that's the nature of travel planning right now. You don't want to get too far ahead of yourself. Lots of hiking. And actually, I'm going to be taking my... Papers to the passport office to get a Canadian passport photo taken wow. <laughs> I'm updating my citizenship papers wait, wait. lots of little errands. I, yeah. I don't
1: remember that you I guess you I do sort of vaguely recall it. You were born in I'm Canada. a dual citizen. Did,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm a dual citizen
1: uh, And can you say why you want to have a Canadian passport or should I just guess
0: I? like flexibility
1: <laughs> <laughs> Now could you get into Europe right now with a Canadian passport because you can't with the US? I
0: have no idea.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, ironically, you can't even get into Canada right now, at least not without a 2 week uh, quarantine. So, uh, If
0: you're a Canadian citizen. Ah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Well, yeah, there's some just disp- dispensation, yeah. but yeah. No, so I don't I don't have anything major planned um which actually frankly, I'm kind of happy about. We usually go winging off somewhere. Um, I'm very grateful that I I went to Yellowstone this in January, but um, I'm okay with just bopping around. Yeah. What about you? What's on your calendar?
1: Uh, you know, just hanging. I'm going to have a week off uh, the end of September, uh, but otherwise just hanging out. You know, we have smoke here, so that not only do we have to stay you know sort of close to home because of COVID, but we have to kind of stay inside because of smoke. Not entirely. I'm still doing my. Four to six miles a day of walking. My, I have not missed a day doing that. Not a single day since March tenth, I think, according to my phone, at least. My phone is never ever wrong. Anyway, so I, you know, but it's it's not as much fun being out and about because you take advantage, usually around here in the Bay Area of hiking in the hills and all that. But it's kind of smoky. So doing some home projects, you know, sort of the same thing. It's been every weekend for the past five months or so, but I don't want to get into that. Let's just move on and let's talk about the Week in Review. Well, I billboarded at the top of the show about uh, in praise of waste collectors and uh, specifically, we had a session uh, at uh, Circularity 22 weeks ago about the role of, of what's often called the informal economy in the developing world, this is, you know, particularly in India and Southeast Asia, people who not only live, uh, have livelihood by, by picking up uh, materials and selling them from landfills, but often live at or near those landfills themselves. And, and I think that the reason we're showcasing them is that you can't really solve the plastic waste crisis without addressing this uh, very large constituency of individuals around the world.
0: Yes, and this is a uh, one of those justice issues, this environmental justice issues, because one of the uh, things that's been painfully clear, um, particularly in India, for example, is that these folks are out there doing their job um, in amid this pandemic. And so they're putting themselves in danger. So that the, 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 the panel made a great case for why, this needs to be a more formal part of the economy, um, and it, it also offered some really great tips for for how. One of the things that I really appreciated is um, Mr. Green Africa, which is an organization uh, that 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 is in Africa, but they're they're providing IDs. They're copying copying the fair trade approaches that they see. So like they're they're thinking about how to make sure that, um, for example, a simple thing like pay them a fair price. Uh, Kieran Smith from that organization also talked about potentially giving these individuals digital IDs, right, so that they can prove their economic value in the chain. That's part of the part of the issue here is that they're they're what they call unbanked, right? They're, they have no record of their of their contribution. And if we do something very simple like that. You could see the, the companies that are relying on these or these people, and they are, even if they don't realize it, would be able to see that, that impact much more
1: closely. Yeah. And as companies commit to using more post-consumer waste, which is primarily in the form of, of plastic water and soda bottles uh, that are collected from landfills. I mean, this is a, a critical part of that supply chain, um, that even though it may be Many, many uh, intermediaries, middlemen—a f- between the, the the bottling plant, let's say, and the, that waste dump in uh, Bangladesh. Um, there's a, there is a, a line that can be drawn to connecting those dots, and companies, you know, need to figure out well, what's their role? What's their responsibility? What's the opportunity for them to help? Bring uh, these individuals to a higher standard of living, and, and a safe environment, because it, some of the places that these waste uh, pickers, as they're sometimes called, there's a, other other terms for them, and I, I can never remember what they what those are. Um, those are also some of the areas with, with some of the highest rates of of COVID right now, like India, uh, and uh, and so this this multiple problems here. But the, the, the challenge and the opportunity here is how do companies think about this? And uh, th- this piece from Dion Anderson, associate editor, is a, is a great uh, look at that. And, and the, the conversation that we had at Circularity 20 a couple weeks ago, I thought was extraordinarily uh, interesting and important.
0: Yes. So I'd like to go next to a Joel McHour special <laughs> <laughs> uh, with one of your essays from, from this week. What does climate risk? actually mean and this is something i think about a lot uh, because and and but but actually you know made me made me realize that i need to go back to the, the dictionary a lot more often because risk as a person a personal risk means a very different thing than than business risk or financial risk and so you get into that a little bit and why why companies are talking so much about risk these days so Joel, what is climate risk? Well,
1: companies are talking about risk these days because investors are talking about risk these days, and uh, they've always investors always talked about risk uh, in general, business risk, but but not necessarily climate risk. And climate risk, as a term, seems to be on a lot of uh, companies and investors' uh, uh, metaphorical lips these days. And so, I wanted to take a look at what that means and 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 what it doesn't mean. But yeah, to your point, I mean, when we talk about risk as individuals, we're thinking about dangers, you know, that we might get coronavirus or that we might get laid off or something else entirely. There's, life is full of risks. Walking down the street, particularly these days, is risky. But, you know, just uh, there's always something and we talk about, avoiding risks or eliminating risks. Um, but in business, risk is just a fact of life. And the question is not about avoiding it, but managing it and 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 mitigating against it by looking at ways to soften those risks or, uh, or, or get, if you're willing to take the risk, to, to make sure that the reward is worth having taken the risk. And so it's very different. And, and what we're talking about with climate, where climate fits into this, is that um, companies are now being asked uh, to report their climate risk. And it, usually using the framework of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, as it's called, and um, <laughs> which is a framework for doing that. And a lot of companies, more and more companies are doing that, again, because their investors are asking them to. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily reducing their greenhouse gas impacts or doing anything else to stem the tide of climate change. It just means that uh, they know what those risks are. They're pricing them into whatever they need to do to price it into their calculations and their investments and their strategies, and they're disclosing that. And so, you know, as I pointed out, a company could be an oil company uh, could say, well, we know what the risks are and we've priced them into uh, taking them into consideration. But it just is going to enable us to continue doing business as usual, drilling and refining and, and all that. Uh, we're not going to change anything. We just are, are demonstrating that um, we have a we have our arms around the risk here. In fact, I quoted Chevron chairman and CEO Michael Worth. Uh, who wrote in the introduction to his company's TCFD disclosure that the report demonstrates that we proactively consider climate change risks and opportunities. We have the experience, processes, and governance in place to manage these risks and opportunities and are equipped to deliver industry-leading results and superior stockholder value in any business environment. Nothing in there about reducing impacts or uh, offsetting or... Investing in clean technologies or anything else that arguably a fossil fuel company these days could and should be doing, and they may be doing that. They are doing some of that, but it's not part of what they need to report when they report climate risk. So that was a long explanation, but I think it's really important as we as we celebrate the rise of certain kinds of disclosures and investment relationships that as we do between institutional investors and banks and the companies that uh, that receive them their monies. It's it's not everything. It's it, it's maybe made out to be in the media. But let's switch over to another session from Circularity 20. We had a great piece that was captured by Meg Wilcox, one of our, our regular contributors, uh, from that event on seven tips for companies developing reusable packaging. Um, and this boy talking about hot topics in the circular economy. Probably none so much as how companies, uh, packaging in general, plastic packaging in particular, and reusable packaging, I think, at the top of that pile.
0: Right. And this piece does a really good job of talking about the different models because you say reusable packaging, right? And you and I have both covered Loop, which has a very specific model. They're, they own the containers. They're cleaning the containers. They're working with the brands on that. It, it's very controlled by them. But there's Totally different models. Um, like, for example, El Gramo, which I wrote about last week, they're a Chilean startup. They're working in low-income neighborhoods in Santiago. And in that model, the consumer owns a container and they bring it back to these kiosks where they can fill it up by quote by the gram, which is what El Gramo means, uh, to the to the extent that they want. Um, and so, they basically have paid for the package once, if you will, and then they can keep refilling it. But then you also have models like Lime Loop, which is one of these companies that, that does um, returnable packaging for e commerce. So, you get a package, you open up the package, and it's something that you can send back. And in that model, the startup actually owns the, the package. You know, in the, the the reusable container. So, and I hadn't really thought about that before, but, but but there are a lot of different models. So, as a brand, as a company that's testing, you have to think think that through. Um, there's also, of course, the need to think about what the consumer wants. So, I just th- there's a lot of really really good consumable, if you will, uh, practical ideas in this piece that I that I that I really appreciated.
1: And as there often is, there's a social element to this too with Gramo um, it, it removes what's often referred to as the poverty tax, which is which is the higher price. Uh, people at the, at the lower ends of the economic spectrum pay for smaller packages because that's all they can afford, or they may not even have room to store the bigger version that a lot of uh, more well-to-do people, middle class and above, will get at you know in this country in a Costco, for example. And so Algramo is able to take uh, uh, smaller containers that consumers own and have those refilled. And again, you're paying by the gram um, and it, it enables people to buy uh, at a bulk price in a small container. That's, uh, we, we may not think about that as individuals in a you know, middle and upper middle class country, but that's a, a huge boon to people uh, in the developing world.
0: Right, and the other common denominator you find with many of these projects is to technology there's usually some kind of tracking mechanism, like a QR code or a radio frequency identification tag of some sort um, that allows you to track this information and, and embed it into other logistics systems. So that, that element is not to be underestimated as well. So, but a really good piece, I mean, for any, any company that's thinking about how th- this model might apply to their own business. As I promised last week, I'm back with more highlights from the main stage of Circularity 20, the Green Biz conference focused on circular economy models and innovations. First up is a segment from a session that I moderated on circularity and equity in cities. The conversation featured Mark Chambers, director of the Mayor's Office of Sustainability for New York, and Jose Manuel Moeller-Dominguez, founder and CEO of El Gramo. I asked both of them to comment on how companies could best support cities in bringing about the systemic change we need while paying far closer attention to the issue of environmental justice.
2: I would say two main things. Uh, The first one is to take this as a business line, not as a PR or marketing side thing. This is serious. This could scale and is scaling actually here in Chile and will scale outside Chile. And secondly, is to learn about collaboration. That's something that is easy to mention but to understand that this change has to be made by different brands at the same moment. I like the market perspective in terms of, this should be a movement, not only from consumers but also as a business to understand, okay, we are all in the same ship. We have this commitment to 2030 and the Paris Agreement goals, and we need to work together. And this means that maybe the one that in the beginning was your competitor, not now needs to be next to you, pushing the same in the same direction. Otherwise, we're gonna all fail. So I will recommend collaboration, and also take this as a business line, not only as a PR side of marketing. We're not looking for optical allyship, right? So the the, the time is coming gone for people to just kind of you know raise their hand and say that they support this too. You need to show it. Mm. You need to actually um, change your business models. You need to actually say that business as usual as it was before is not conducive to the future where all of us can thrive. You know, only two percent of packaging is in some form of closed loop system, 2%. you know. So we need to really think differently about you know, holding uh, everyone accountable. That's myself included. So policymakers, as well as manufacturers in the private sector, need to no longer be using packaging that cannot be entered into a closed loop system. Like, I think that time is coming and gone and we need to move forward and define what that is. And so when I get back to the idea of, collective action, that means that we need to start holding everyone more accountable to that end and making sure that we're demanding that manufacturers you know, take a look at the outcomes of them not acting and, and how that's impacting all the communities and the population that they're serving and basically change those behaviors to make sure that, that they're producing products that we can actually utilize in the future because we're around to utilize it. And it's not something that is um, continuing to source packaging from fossil fuels and oils to enable a single use society. We have to do better and we need to hold everyone accountable to that.
0: Next, I'd like to feature some comments from an insightful session about the human dimension of waste collection. The discussion centered on the role of individual waste collectors, notably in South and Southeast Asia. Most of them are poorly compensated for their work and the panelists made the case for turning them from informal contributors to a more formal part of the plastics recycling supply chain. Here's Brati Chadaverde, founder and director of the Chintan Environmental Research and Action Group in India, followed by Kiernan Smith, co-founder and CEO of Mr. Green Africa.
3: We're talking about some of the most marginal people in our cities. In our cities today, all over the world, 1% of the population in the developing world um, is a person who's recycling our waste. And what's really interesting about that is that um, that might be a trend that's spreading to the more developed world as well after COVID. But what we are seeing is these people are stigmatized. But they really know their ways. They know what will sell. They pick it up. They sell it. They send their children to school. And in our part of the world, in South Asia and, uh, and uh, parts of Southeast Asia, we find that they actually do earn minimum wages, but they work in terrible conditions. So they pay a huge price for their health. And that is, I think, the biggest challenge, because they they are people who today as we speak. These are people who are picking up used masks lying on beaches and on open places. These are people who are still going despite COVID and going doorstep collection and picking up waste. These are people who are also the, the, the frontline workers fighting climate change. Because if you just go on mining materials and if you just go on um, you know dumping them in the oceans, you're going to have a huge problem. We already are but they're mitigating that through their work and yet uh, nobody recognizes them as the climate warriors, as the environmentalists that they truly are. And I'm really talking about about a million and a half to two million people on this planet.
4: I think there's definitely many, many moving parts to this, but on what, uh, I would split it up in three major parts. The the first part that I would, would use is the, the inclusion part. So how can we truly make this informal market part of the supply chain? And, and one element to do that successfully is really in, um, inf- moving them from informal to formal. Can we put them on a growth trajectory? Can we uh, formalize their, their, th- themselves as a, as with IDs, a simple thing like an ID, but all the way to sort of really creating um, a, a record of financial inclusion, etc., to really be part of the private sector? The second part is the, the, the middle element that really is the, the processing. So um, we we hear a lot of uh, times, we hear uh, corporates uh, who are looking for PCR, we hear them say, we want to buy PCR, but it's not available. Uh, and so bridging that gap from uh, collectors who collect plastics, bringing that through a value chain, a supply chain, that converts this plastic waste into high-quality PCR is an aso- another essential bit. And then the offtake, right? Uh, once we have... Uh, a quality, high-quality PCR, uh, bringing that to the customer, uh, like a corporate who wants to go, uh, who already maybe already uses PCR or wants to go on a journey to use PCR. Um, how do we link that back to them and and really create that transparency and link the connect these dots in between, and and that's what we also in our promise, as Mr. Green Africa say, is like um, every ton you buy. Uh, from Mr green Africa, we can show you directly where this um the income of that is trickling down to and so de- democratizing this value chain is really the essence of mr green africa and I think doing that on scale is 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 one of the bullets of of providing a solution i i, I don't say we're the silver bullet, but I'm definitely claiming that we're one of the the models that that can work and especially in emerging markets where we have a lot of um waste pickers and and I- informal players that uh, deserve to be treated better uh, and included into supply chains like ours.
0: The final snippet I'll share is a highlight from the powerful interview with design thinker, Tim Brown, chairman of IDEO. He's a widely regarded expert on creative leadership and the strategic application of design across sectors such as health, education, technology, mobility, and global development. Here, Brown addresses the two major models for systems change.
5: I, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking a lot about systems change in the last six months uh, because of what's going on around uh, uh, around the pandemic. And uh, you know, I, I don't I don't consider myself to be a deep expert on complex systems. I have read quite a bit about them. I've been working in them for a while. But you know, it seems to me that there are two forces for change when it comes to a system. One is outside in, and the other is inside out. If you uh, to put it very simplistically, the the inside out one, uh, which is you know, we see the need for change. We're in a system. We see the need to change for it. Um, and that inside-out approach is what I think of as act- it's essentially activism, right? It's it's stating how the how that system needs to change in a way that's compelling enough that the players in the system begin to change. That tends to be that's a hard that's hard work. It tends to be incremental at the beginning and then builds up pace over time. The other kind of change is the, the stuff that happens um, outside in, and that's what happens when the conditions in which a system exists change rap- rapidly for some reason. That's exactly what's going on with healthcare right now with the pandemic we're seeing these radical shifts in the conditions in which healthcare exists. We're seeing, for instance, the connectivity between individual health and public health in a way that we had just lost sight of um, and realizing that, thing, for instance, that people's economic situation, whether or not they have chronic conditions, adds up to the impact that it has on our total public health, right? So we in, a, in the US, for instance, are struggling because, to be honest, uh, the, the kind of base status of our health is not as good as it needs to be in compared to other countries. Um uh, but we also see you know we, we we also see other things, so for instance, the system has shifted so radically that it's it's made certain solutions suddenly available that weren 't available before. telemedicine is a good example within two weeks after the pandemic hit, laws changed in Washington to make telemedicine payable by um uh, by insurance companies. They were actually paid to ha- in, in a way that had taken five years of effort and not not actually made happen before through activism, if you like. Um, And so telemedicine is accelerating hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars investment going into telemedicine that wasn't happening six months ago. That's interesting because that's an outside in, non-incremental impact on a system.
6: I'm Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor at GreenBiz, and I'm here with Trista Bridges and Donald Eubank. Trista is a highly regarded advisor with experience in strategy development and extensive topics. In her recent work as co-founder of Read the Air, a business advisory coalition, she advises businesses on sustainability, providing them with the insights and solutions needed to transition to sustainable business models. Um, Donald is a seasoned manager with experience in the IT, finance, and media industries. As a co-founder of Read the Air, he serves as an important advisor to businesses that are integrating sustainability into their core strategy. Together, Trista and Donald are the authors of Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business, and How the SDGs Changed Everything. Thank you all for being on the show.
7: Uh, Hi, Deanna. Thanks for having us.
6: So in the promo for you all's book, you mentioned that the business world is at an important crossroads and that the age of the stakeholder is rapidly superseding that of the shareholder as climate change and political and societal shifts upend years of seeming prosperity. I'm curious if you can describe like what the current state of business is as it relates to sustainability.
8: Sure. So I can uh, take that, Louisiana. I would say, um, If we're looking at the current state, it's very much varied, right? So it very much depends on the industry you're looking at. It depends on where you are in the world. Um, In our research, we spoke with companies around the world, and we definitely saw there were certain regions and certain parts of the world that were moving much more quickly on this. So, for example, in Europe, we saw pretty much a broad acceptance that business needs to transform itself to something that's a bit more comprehensive in terms of the stakeholder, as you mentioned. So taking into account the needs of various different types of people or organizations, et cetera, in society, and thinking about not just what they um, can contribute to society from a profitability perspective, but also in terms of social action or environmental responsibility or other key factors. I would say though, that just generally in business, if you're looking at the world overall, There's certainly an acceptance that they need to change towards something, towards a different approach in many regards. Um, And why? Because they're starting to get a lot of pressure, not just from governments in certain parts of the world, but also from their customers, from consumers most certainly. There's a lot of turmoil as we know in the world and often business is at the kind of kind of bears a bit of the brunt of it in some ways <laughs> in terms of if they're a type of organization that people can identify with and connect to. Um, so they're definitely being called upon to be better actors in society.
6: Yeah. And uh, it sounds like it's an important time for that, for them to be better actors.
7: Um, Can I I quickly, just a short thing, as we say in the book, you know, there's a lot of work that has been done, but there's still far to go.
6: Totally. So something that is in your title is how the SDGs changed everything. Um, And I know that you all's book was inspired by the launch of the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm curious if you can just explain a little bit about how the SDGs have changed everything.
8: I, I would definitely say that what they've given people is almost like a common hymn book, if you will, to sing from, in the sense that we now have language around sustainability also that's much broader. So sustainability traditionally had been more in terms of environmental context. But if you look at the SDGs, they have you know, their 17 goals and they deal with lots of different things from poverty to infrastructure and development to Uh, health and well-being. So I think we definitely have a much broader definition of sustainability than we ever had before.
6: So I know that um, as you all were researching and writing your book, you all connected with companies that were trying to take steps to improve their business practices and become more sustainable. Um, I'm curious if there were any examples of companies that you feel like did this work in a surprisingly good way or somehow gave some revelation uh, to you all in the work that you're doing.
7: Uh, there were a number of, of champions that we identified along the way. Um, I, one I'll mention, which always impressed us when we, we met with their people and, and when we looked into them was DSM, uh, which is a Dutch nutrients company. Their president, who their CEO, he went to a world food program uh, maybe 10 years ago or, or longer. And he kind of had a a, a recognition that there were major problems that his business could be helping to solve and that it was a business opportunity opposed to some sort of philanthropic activities they could be doing. And he went back and he shifted the company a completely new direction. And now they have KPIs for divisions and for roles that are all defined around achieving the sustainability goals of the company. Just do you want to mention some others?
8: Um, sure. So there was one company that in particular that I found quite um, inspiring, and that's a company named Givaudin, which is the leading flavor and fragrance company globally. If you look at any type of product that you eat or when you go into a store and it smells nice, Givaudin is a company, one of the companies that's probably behind it. Um, and the thing that was interesting about them is that they're effectively in a chemicals business, which is you know, a very difficult and challenging and a bit dirty business. But one of the things I think was most interesting about them was that they were one of the best examples, I'd say, of stakeholder engagement, right? So their CEO uh, had been engaged a long time around this topic. They went to a few forums and participated, and they really saw the value of working together as an industry, and they've become a real proponent in their industry for change. And most recently, they've decided to start on the path of becoming a B Corporation. This will be the second largest company if they, if they succeed outside of data which you are probably are quite familiar with. So they were really an interesting example for me of senior level engagement and how important it is for the CEO to get involved, how it really takes an industry and not just one company to enact change.
6: So your book is a guide for managers who are trying to shift um, as the business environment changes. I'm curious if there's any main takeaways, like if, if readers take nothing else away from your book, what do you want them to leave with after they're done?
8: There's a few things that, that I would say. I think one thing is that we often look at sustainability like it's some type of extraneous activity or something that we do for compliance reasons. But actually, firstly, I think we need to be looking at sustainability like we would any other business discipline. And what does that require? That requires proper training of the staff around it. That requires proper resourcing, um, making sure that it's integrated into business processes. So for example, when we started on this journey of writing this book, we talked to a company, one of the companies we talked to was a huge multinational conglomerate uh, Japanese company. And we asked them about how they think about sustainability in business decisions. And so the person who was in charge of that, you know, this person who's a sustainability officer, This person actually sat at the end of the process. And that, in our opinion, is a real problem, right? Because with most companies, when they develop a product or service, they have a whole process they go through. It could take a year, it could take 18 months. It is very unlikely at the end of that process, after they've checked everything off and they've already developed prototypes or they've already developed a product to launch on the market, that they're going to say stop because the sustainability officer says, don't do that. So our first... uh, point our first I think the first big takeaway is that in the decisions that are made this needs to be factored in from the very beginning and it needs to be a part of business planning managers need to be held accountable for sustainability metrics Um, that's something that a lot of companies actually still don't do surprising surprisingly, uh, and they're starting to think about doing that. But you can't expect people to actually take action unless there's both a carrot and a stick, if you will. So I think that would be the first thing I would say. And then I think the next thing I would say is we have this thinking around what what types of people should be in these roles. And I think the first thing is really interest. Right. There's a lot of people who are really passionate about this subject and topic, want to be a part of transforming their company instead of sticking somebody in a role because it's their time or because, you know, the. This is an important topic and this person has done a great job elsewhere and they need to take on this one. Why not reach out to people in the organization that have a real interest uh, and have a a passion for this subject and really want to see transform the business? I think that's one thing we would say. And of course, making sure to leverage young talent, too, because young talent, we found in our research, just seems to be much more in tune with with these issues and with, with this topic in general just you know, as a final takeaway, I, I'm actually really encouraged. I understand that, you know, we're behind in a lot of ways um, at the moment, right? So there's a lot of discussion around whether we're going to actually hit the 2030 goals and the timeframe that's been laid out. I think that's looking very difficult at this point. But I would say that in the unfortunate situation that we're in coming out of COVID-19, I think that we, we have a general understanding we have to change something. And that perhaps many of the problems we've gotten into as societies you know, around the world is because we have not been pursuing a sustainable path. I think people are starting to come around to that thinking in the short term, yes, there's going to be trade-offs, and many companies are probably going to pull back some initiatives for sure. Sure, but I think it's just getting to be very risky not being a sustainable business. Investors are starting to respond very negatively to companies who are not uh, taking that path. Right? We're starting to see some signs of that. So I would say that you know, although it's, it, it can be a very challenging time, I think we should be hopeful that we are starting to have consumers, different stakeholders, etc., who are Ready for this, and so my last uh, takeaway just to be would be you know get started if you haven't already gotten, gotten started look to others in the, your industries for inspiration who who are moving and have moved more steadily on a sustainable path and make sure that you move in uh, more in that direction
7: yeah I'd agree and i I'd say that you know We've been talking a lot about the individual businesses, but this question about finance and investors is very important. Companies need to start paying attention to it because investors are almost moving faster than companies right now. So that's, a, that's one. And the second would be it's going to take industries together, working together in partnership to make changes. So companies themselves need to start looking at their industry associations and partnerships that they can make with NPOs and with governments to work together to make industry-wide change. And that will have the highest impact possible.
6: Yes, all of that. <laughs> I feel like at GreenBiz, something we talk about a lot is just like how important partnership is across industries and within industries. So I'm ex- I'm happy that you all brought that up. Thank you, Trista and Donald, for coming on the GreenBiz 350 podcast.
7: Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
6: Thanks so much. Great talking to you. Leading sustainably, the path to sustainable business and how the SDGs changed everything is available for purchase right now.
9: Hi, I'm Jim Giles. I'm the senior analyst for Food and Carbon Systems here at Greenbiz. And today I have with me uh, Nora Goldstein, who is the editor of Biocycle magazine. Hi, Nora.
10: Hi there, Jim, how are
9: you today? I'm doing good, thanks. So I called up Nora because I was curious about uh, the situation with uh, composting and recycling uh, in the US. And I'm realizing that I live in a bit of a bubble. So I live in San Francisco, and I separate out all my food waste, my yard trimmings, I put it in a green bin, and it goes off to a composting facility. But recently, I have learned that that is not the case across most of the U.S. So, Nora, just explain to us, what does the situation look like in most other cities?
10: So, in most other cities, uh, residents, households like you don't have the same opportunity to just put your your household organics out at the curb uh, for food scraps. It's important to say that. And in a survey we did three years ago on on residential food waste collection, uh, we found about 325 communities around the country that had some sort of program, perhaps not as sophisticated as San Francisco's, but households have the opportunity to put out their food scraps at the curb and increasingly more and more are able to take it to drop-off sites at their farmer's markets or or elsewhere around the community. So access is increasing, but the kind of program you have in San Francisco is probably in another 320, 30 other cities in the United States.
9: And so what fraction of the population or what number of households do you think are being served by these systems?
10: It's in the range, it's under 5% um it was higher um and our data is w- before new york city uh suspended its curbside residential curbside collection program uh earlier this year but it's it's definitely not a, i don't think we've broken five percent yet
9: so that's a pretty small number relative to the the size of the u.s um what uh, you know should we be doing more what are the benefits of having a a kind of large-scale composting facility attached to a city.
10: The the benefits are both from keeping uh, organic materials like food waste out of the landfill, as food waste especially breaks down very quickly and emits methane before they can cover that, that cell of the, the landfill. So you're avoiding those methane emissions and then using compost uh, is highly beneficial. It adds really needed organic matter to the soil and nutrients, and can sequester carbon, which is something we're learning more about, uh, you know, these days than we knew before.
9: So this sounds a bit crazy because we know that food waste is a huge system, uh, a huge problem. Sorry, food waste overall contributes something like six percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it seems like there are obvious benefits to tackling at least a fraction of our food waste challenge through composting facilities. Uh, why, why aren't there more of them?
10: The traditional waste management infrastructure, which is very heavily oriented to landfill disposal, um, is is ingrained in the majority of communities in our in our country and there's never been any national incentives to to change that to focus on on thro- throwing less away regulatorily there's there's a lot of public education programs but to regulate or mandate that organic materials and same with recycled materials but we're talking organic materials today have they should be recycled because we desperately need them for the soils and, and the, the nutrients they offer, the, the benefits they bring, uh, and and so that's never been a national policy. And truly throwing, throwing your waste away is, is takes you don't have to sort it, you don't have to touch it. So um, and landfills, uh, whether they're municipally or publicly owned, make a lot of money from you know from their tipping fees. So not a lot of incentive to change.
9: Okay. So we need new incentives. So I am just, just for this moment in this thought experiment, I'm going to put you in charge of incentives. Um, tell me the, the one or two things, uh, steps that you would implement to change the system, to provide the right kind of incentives and not just for, for cities as well. Let's bring, uh, the private sector and particularly food companies and ag companies into this conversation.
10: Sure. So If I had a magic wand that I could could make this change um, in our very current times, you know, we're we're looking at things like carbon taxes or some sort of some sort of attribute, environmental attribute assigned to a material like compost, because it does have significant climate benefits. But most importantly, we can't lose sight of what compost does for the soil in food production. Um, It adds needed organic matter and slow release nutrients and is uh, the third leg of a three-legged stool of no-till cover crops. And then adding compost, you get the full effect of what we need to do to sustain our soils and grow food. So my magic wand would then, you know, sort of swipe over, sprinkle dust over corporate American food companies who rely on the soil to produce the food for their products. And also, once they're getting ready to sell them, put them in packaging, which I'll get to in just one quick second. But if they saw some sort of incentive or put an incentive out there so that they were closing that loop, it would be huge. Um, and, And the packaging, the technologies are such that you can do a package that's 100 percent recyclable or 100 percent compostable, but that hasn't really been at very minimally integrated into the whole food, like the food supply chain.
9: Nora, thanks so much for your time and insight. I think that's really interesting. And uh, we're certainly hoping there will be some change and forward movement on this front because it does seem like a crazy problem that a bit more joined up thinking could help us address. So thanks again. That was Nora Goldstein, who is the editor of BioCycle. And I am Jim Giles, uh, who runs food and carbon systems here at Green Biz. Thanks so much, Nora.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week and while you're over there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. Also, coming up in September, we've got a full slate, I think, seven webcasts coming up. Uh, some really great ones. Well, they're all really great, so you should check them all out. Uh, go to greenbiz.com webcasts, and you'll learn about those. As always, we welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather, as I said, will be off next week, the next two weeks, actually, but I'll be back next week with guest host Shauna Rappaport with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.